You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. What do you believe makes a great restaurant? Taste of the food? Service? Value? Ambiance? Maybe location? My job here at UPC is in part to lead the charge of the outreach that we have to students from UW, SPU, Seattle, U, Northwest, and the community colleges. And we take a very uh, highly relational approach in accomplishing that goal. And one of the guys on our staff, a guy named Mike McAvoy, a guy that we call Voy for short, uh, decided to combine two of his self-proclaimed passions in that, college students and food. Not that he wants to devour the college students, though when you first meet him, you think he might be capable of it. Voy, uh, in wanting to accomplish this goal of doing this consistent relational ministry, made a resolution at the beginning of this past school year that he wanted to visit every single restaurant on the app from 50th to Pacific with a student and, and write a blog about it. Okay, So uh, for those of you wondering, that's 72 Restaurants, And I think I'm happy to report that he accomplished that goal and made it to all of them. Well, in this, in this blog that he wrote, which is quite interesting, uh, he has a few criteria that he's laid out for what he believes makes a great restaurant. And to just sample a few of those things for you, of course, the first one would be taste. Okay? Does this taste good to your particular palate? Okay, and I should probably warn you at this point that if you hadn't had breakfast before coming into worship this morning, this sermon is going to be punishing. Okay? Uh, two is, are intangibles. Okay? And by that, you need to know about Voy, that he's a former Husky football player, and for him, intangibles are basically boiled down to, do they have any sort of Husky paraphernalia on the walls for you know when he when he rates decor he's really talking about do they have any w's in there and particular particularly do they have any team photos with me on it okay <laughs> so he's that's that's in part intangibles but really what mike's uh, this blog that you can read at voyage to the um, is really about value and my, what Mike believes about value is, is really the amount of food for the money. Let me give you a sampling of what, how this plays out on his blog in this uh, review of, of Thai Tom's right here on the app. It says, they, Thai Tom's, serve your food in a giant banana leaf plate, exclamation point. Uh, right there, you know it's going to be good. Nothing served out of a plate like that doesn't have exquisite flavor and bodacious taste. Mike, at first, wasn't super impressed by Ty Tom's portion size. Mike has a scribe, so everything's in the third person. Mike, uh, Mike kept hoping that Tyler didn't eat all of his food so that he could eat it. The banana leaf plate, however, must bend physics somehow and hide more food somewhere in the plate. Because by the end of his meal, Mike was pleasantly full. So it got a good rate on, on value, a nine, a nine out of ten, in fact. So while there might be these other categories that Voy believes makes a great restaurant, it really has to do with value. I need to be full and I need to have paid not a lot of money to get there. 
We love to have a good time in UMAN, and, and we don't take ourselves too seriously as we try to reach out to students in the area. But the question comes back, what do you believe makes a great restaurant? Perhaps you have a criteria. Now, while we, we start there, where we're going this morning as we come to, to worship is to ask the question, what do we believe about a faithful God that gives us hope and then impacts everything that we do in our daily lives? In the story that we're going to hear this morning, we get to hear from a few guys that turned down some great food, not because of what they believed makes a great restaurant or makes great food or about portion sizes, but what they believed about God. And so we come to engage this same question of what we believe about God and his faithfulness this morning. And to do that, we're going to journey back uh, to the 6th century B.C. and visit with the prophet Daniel and some of his friends. Now, unlike his more public counterparts, Isaiah and Jeremiah, who were really kind of like the Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson of the prophetic world, Daniel was more of a Tom Watson, Stuart Sink type. Now, some crazy things happened to Daniel that, for those of you that have kids, they're going to tell you about these things because they're going to learn about them in Sunday school, things like the lion's den and the fiery furnace and some, some crazy things. But for Daniel, most of his life and, and his prophetic uh, journey happens more in private. It's him in front of, of one or him in front of a few, not him in front of many. So, so he's, not, he's not as well known. But we do know this about Daniel and his friends, is that they were some of the best that the Israelites had to offer. They were really smart guys with strong pedigrees. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has just come into Jerusalem and taken Judah. So he's trying to establish this new kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, quite astutely, figures it would be a good idea to take the best of the best of the folks that were there, these, these Israelites, and get them on his side and indoctrinate them into Babylonian ways. And so the king sets out on this journey, and as part of that journey, he wants to serve them some of the best uh, from the bounty that comes from his table. So we are going to pick up this story and read it together this morning as Daniel is making the decision as to if he should accept these rations from the Babylonian king's table. So as we stand and read from the first chapter of Daniel, I encourage you to listen, not for what this says about Daniel, but what does this tell us about God? So please stand if you are able per the new tradition we have at UPC, and let us read Daniel chapter 1, it's on page 717, beginning at verse 8, and if some of these names give you trouble, you can just mumble through them, and God will smile on you for at least making the effort, all right? So let's read together. Daniel 1, beginning at chapter 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. 
Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was observed that they had appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every manner of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, this is an overview of what you would encounter in the, in the next 11 chapters of this book of Daniel, which I encourage you to read through, perhaps, uh, over the next week. And it's important to understand that as, as Daniel entered the king's service, he was not just there for four years, like a college student might be, or even 40 years, like the stories of, an, of his ancestors. But in that last line about King Cyrus, we know that he was there for more like 70 years, here most of, of what would be his, his working life. So as we engage this narrative, we need to keep in view that Daniel is a slave. That the situation he is in is not preferred. He is an Israelite working for a Babylonian. And he and his buddies would in some ways love to repay evil with evil, but that is not the course that they take. These guys were the, some of the most intelligent men in the Israelite community. I bet they were rather good-looking and broad-shouldered, intelligent men. We get this from the first part of Daniel that we didn't read in that passage just now. And so he, so Nebuchadnezzar starts thinking, maybe if we start feeding them the stuff that we have and treating them like Babylonians, these smart, smart guys will become one of us. This is a sales pitch, ladies and gentlemen. Now, everybody loves free food, right? It's one of the reasons that Voy was so successful in getting these college students to go on the ab with him. He paid for lunch every single time. If we offer free food to college students, it's almost a layup that we're going to get a critical mass there. It's a, it's a tactic that works. I know from personal experience. One May, my wife Julie and I went up to what we call our happy place, uh, Whistler, B.C., which will host the Olympics in the upcoming winter. And 
In May, you can find great deals on lodging and recreation up at Whistler, in part because that time of year, the weather is still a little bit hit and miss. Well, on this one Saturday in May, it was just pouring sheets of rain, and the activities that we had planned on doing outside uh, if they were possible, they were certainly not going to be enjoyable because it was 34 degrees and raining. So uh, we we had encountered somebody in the village earlier that week that was kind of that was you know promoting one of those. Hey, come and listen to our presentation, and you can have a hundred dollars to have dinner at one of several different restaurants in the village. And so we thought, hey, it's a rainy day. Why don't we go make some money and have a great dinner later on tonight? Great idea. Okay, so we, we go and do it, and while we were there, turns out they, they served us some food while we were there, and we really enjoyed the woman that kind of walked us through this experience, and, you know, we're having, having a good old time, and, and sure enough, at the end of it, they gave us the, the $100 coupon to go out and enjoy a dinner at, at one of the places in the village, and, and so Julie and I did, and as, as we enjoyed this, this what felt like a, a free dinner, we talked about man, I sure hope we made the right investment because <laughs> we bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And so, that, needless to say, that was not the last time we've been to Whistler. We will go there every year, and we will go there every year for the rest of our lives. <laughs> because this strategy typically works. A vacation home in Babylon is what's being sold to Daniel and his friends. And the temptation here is for us to read this story and go, okay, so the way that you you resist being tempted by the sales pitch is to become a vegetarian. To be obedient that way, to not defile yourself. But I'm not positive that that is what this text and what this story is telling us. I know that throughout my faith journey, that has been uh, the way that I've been tempted to operate at times, is to go, you know, if I just do the right stuff, then maybe God will return His faithfulness to me. Maybe the Lord will choreograph events in such a way that I would want them, and He will return to my side. But this is not about the veggies in a way that will somehow garner more of God's attention. This is about God's faithfulness, as we are told that it was God who allowed it in the first place. You see, it was not because of Daniel's faithfulness that God showed favor, but because God's faithful, it was because of God's faithfulness that enabled Daniel and his friends to live differently and take that risk. Perhaps they remember in the midst of them looking at this situation going, what is up with the fact that God allowed this to happen? Why are these bad things happening to us? These are questions that we ask in our lives as well, right? This question of why that seems to have no answer that makes sense when we think of a faithful God. But coming from the background that these Israelites had, I, I wonder if what they're thinking is, is about God's long view faithfulness. Are they thinking about, wait a minute, God is faithful. We are blessed to be a blessing. That's a promise. We need to remember that, that our ancestors were in captivity to Pharaoh and God led them out of that situation as well. God's faithfulness is a long-term 
faithfulness. It's interesting that in chapter 2, after Daniel uh, interprets one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 47 is this. He says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Friends, this is big. God's faithfulness is a long-view faithfulness, and it prompts a steadfastness from these four men, Daniel and his three friends, but not just them. It prompts worship from Nebuchadnezzar, a foreign king, and albeit this worship is temporary. But when we talk about God's faithfulness, God's hope is for all to see that faithfulness, not just those that are obedient, not just those that are turning down the food from the king's table and taking the veggies. God's faithfulness in this narrative is one that he desires to make known to all. Several years ago, I was inspired now by a friend to start doing marathons. Not sure I would call them a friend anymore. <laughs> Initially, it was kind of a cross to carry as a type of masochistic human fundraiser. But really, one of the great moments following that first marathon where Gaff and I ran negative splits, meaning that our second 13.1 miles was actually faster than our first 13.1 miles. And, and one Sunday, the following Sunday after... I was back here uh, talking with our beloved pastor emeritus, Earl Palmer, and he was asking, you know, hey, how'd the marathon go? And I, uh, you know, I told him, yeah, you know, we, we made it through, we raised some money, we ran negative splits, and this was totally bewildering to Earl. And Earl, Earl just looks at me with kind of blank, uh, a blank look and just goes, you gained strength. You gained strength. That's not possible. So, he, though he was totally, totally bewildered, it was something that my wife, who is a nutritionist, taught me in training. She told me that I should never pass one of those aid stations without taking something. Now, later on, when I attempted to do an Ironman triathlon, that advice became all the more important. When you pass one of these aid stations and somebody is offering you something to eat, take it. Because if you wait until you think you need it, so take it even if you feel like you don't need it, because if you wait until you feel like you need it, it's actually too late. You're in trouble. So if somebody at one of these aid stations is offering you something, take it. Now, what that doesn't mean is if you see a McDonald's on the side of the road, <laughs> go ahead and go on in there and hook yourself up because that might not be the best way to go about finishing a marathon. But if somebody at the side of the road is going to give you something, take it and eat it. Why do I share this story? As we return to our text this morning, I think it shows something of what these four guys believed about God. What they believed about God is that He is a giver. He's a giver. He's going to give them what they need to keep going. They believe and experience a God that gives. Like aid stations in, mar in, a, in a marathon or a triathlon, God is there giving them the things that they need the whole way. We look at verse uh, 17 in the text that we read. To these young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Then if you turn the page and, and look at chapter 2 beginning at 
the 20th verse, there's a song that Daniel sings after God has again helped him reveal one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And Daniel says this, Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, disposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and light dwells with them. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we asked of you. For you have revealed to us what the king ordered. Daniel acknowledges here that God is first. That what this is about, before it's about any sort of veggies, it's about God. He stops and sings this praise that communicates this hope that he has in a God that continues to give unceasingly. He trusts that what God has given him is true. It doesn't mean that he always likes that, but it's true. If we were to turn back the clock, not... uh, eight centuries, but 15 years ago or so, I was a college freshman that enjoyed having uh, a lot of fun with some of the newfound freedoms that I encountered as I began here at the University of Washington. I, some, when I share this story in front of the inn, I say I was participating in one might call a garden variety fraternal hedonism. There it is. And Yet, in that season, I continued to go to the inn and even worship here occasionally at UPC. And after we had finished a series in Romans uh, at the inn, uh, I was meditating on this promise that comes at the end of Romans 8, when it says that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. As I continued to sit with that passage, it, it honestly kind of haunted me for a little, a little while. And what it came down to was I was led to this place of going, if I'm going to say that I believe this, what does this mean for my life? It probably means that there needs to be a little bit something different than garden variety fraternal hedonism. That if this God, who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, is saying, that is exactly what I have given. You see, God is a giver, as Daniel has experienced. But what God has primarily given us is God's self in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from that love. For me, there was that, I could not pinpoint pinpoint that moment that I, so to speak, became a Christian. But it was at that point that out of what I believed of a God that would give himself, I started going, I think this has implications for my life and how I live it every day. Not just when I'm in community. Not just when I'm in front of people. But when I'm by myself as well. Being transformed by the renewing of our mind, as the passage that Ray read from Romans 12 this morning empowers us to do, starts when we are in touch with asking, what is it that we believe about a God that gives, and God that gives primarily himself, and in so doing, shows us grace, mercy, love, compassion, forgiveness. 
So if God is faithfully a God that gives good gifts to his children, the question then becomes, how does that change us? If we're going to affirm that God is who scripture testifies God to be, and we believe it, it's going to change us. Friends, what if, as a community of believers, we were to be a thermostat instead of a thermometer? Not merely being people that take uh, the culture or our home's temperature, our neighborhood's temperature, our workplace's temperature, but being those that out of what we believe operate as a type of thermostat. That because of what we believe, we actually set that temperature. Because of what we believe about a God that would give everything, including himself. I have a really cute, red-headed, 10-month-old son, our first. And one of the most powerful thoughts that I encounter at this point of my life is when I stop and remember that God is more in love with Carson than I am. That God is more passionate about Carson than I am. That in my job, God is more passionate about university students than I am. God is more passionate about my neighborhood than I am. I believe that. There's times I forget it, but there's when I stop and remember it, I'm pointed to the, to the God that has given everything. Because if I'm really honest, I would not be willing to give my cute, red-headed son for all of you. But we worship a God that has done exactly that. That is what we believe God did in Jesus. And that is what we bear witness to. That type of love and hope and commitment that is seen in God giving himself. Now recall what I said about Daniel beginning not necessarily being the Tiger Woods of prophets. You see, the narrative that we have read, it happens a lot more in private than it does in public. That is to say, Daniel isn't the type that, it, that was doing what I'm doing right now, in front of a lot of people proclaiming a message. But what he did, he did in front of one. He did, and it was very understated. He remains consistent the entire time. And friends, this is my encouragement as we... As we Watch Daniel's witness is that it doesn't have to be spectacular. What does it mean to live out this belief in a faithful God that gives in front of simply one other person? A friend, your spouse, a neighbor. It doesn't need to be in front of a bunch of people. It's a lot more simple than it is spectacular. For Daniel, it happened in front of one or a few because of the deep trust Daniel had in believing that God was a faithful giver, it allows him the opportunity to demonstrate an inspiring unflappability and consistency. It is faith and hope that prompt obedience in his case, not the other way around. So what is the belief in a faithful God that produces hope doing in us? That is our invitation this morning. 
to ask what is it that you believe that inspires this countercultural consistency that makes you a thermostat setting a kingdom temperature in the places that you reside? What do you believe God's passion is for your family? What do you believe God's passion is for your neighbor? How about for your career? Friends, it's not about the veggies. It's about God's faithfulness as a giver that would give God's self. And so we remember and ground our lives in that faithfulness. God's passion is for us, for you to know that love and faithfulness for you and to simply bear witness to that reality in a world of mystery and chaos. Let's pray. Lord, empower us to go forward as ones who believe. Soften our hearts and open our minds to make that belief even greater. And Lord, when we, when we do land on those things, we pray for the strength and courage to follow through, not merely in a confession, but in a lifestyle. Lord, may our lives be a living sacrifice that is that confession to what we believe. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness that you take us back over and over again, that you inspire us over and over again, and that even when conditions are unfavorable, you are with us. Lord, be with us as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.